What's going on, everybody? This is your host, BJ Parker, and this is the Making the Turn Podcast. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the show. Another episode of Making the Turn. And I am your host, BJ Parker, and I'm glad you're joining us. I hope you're out there listening, sharing, rating the podcast. If you hadn't gone and listened to it, I would appreciate you doing it. It's available on all your social media platforms. And I got another special guest, a guy that I haven't got to spend a lot of time with, but I'm looking forward to this interview. I think you're going to really enjoy it. Mr. or Dr. Jim Brosnan from the University of Tennessee. How you doing, sir? I'm good. How are you, BJ? I, I'm I'm doing great, man. I I gotta say I really appreciate you being here. This is gonna be a lot of fun. Well, I appreciate the invitation. I'm a, a huge podcast listener, a big fan of many podcasts, and a big fan of your podcast. I know heard uh, Dan Johnson, uh, I think his first or second episode. Yeah, and uh, just was really blown away. I mean, the, the content was was really on point and has been for all the episodes that have come out since then uh audio quality is really good i mean just kudos to you there's a real there's a real place for this in our industry well i appreciate you saying that you uh that's kind of how we got um at this point you reached you know we i don't know if i reached out to you you reached out to me but I, i do i do remember having a conversation and you were very supportive of what i was doing and I appreciate that. I, I, I'm a big fan of podcasts, and I felt like this was a great place for us to, or for me to kind of dive into an industry that hadn't had a lot of content. And so I, I, I appreciate you sitting down. And, and uh, man, I'm just I'm looking forward to this conversation. And and uh, where do you, as far as you know, some of the things you've heard, is there anything that sticks out to you as far as where you know some of the podcasts outside of maybe Dan his goofiness or whatever? Is there anything that sticks out? No, I mean, I, I just say that it's been a nice blend uh, of content, a good diversity of guests. Hopefully, I can continue that today. <laughs> um, and, you know, the pace of it's really good. You know, you know, a lot of podcasts that are really popular, like Joe Rogan, for example, I listen to it regularly. There's just so much content, it almost becomes overwhelming yeah. that you can get 15, 16 deep in terms of unlistened episodes and have this sense that you're never going to get caught back up. Yeah. Uh, so the pace of it's been really good, and there's just... It's really great. I, I'm, I really enjoy listening every week. Well, I hope that you can, um, when you when we're done here, I hope you can encourage guys who to uh, jump on. Uh, I'll talk to any and any and any and everybody, and I I'm really enjoying sitting down with guys and talking about our industry, and and so you'll you'll be another uh, added voice of uh, just support out there for just uh, getting people out and let and talking to me, and uh, we'll talk about golf or whatever, and so. Uh, I'm, I think that's going to be a big help. Yeah, for sure. Well, so um, tell me uh, a little bit about yourself. Uh, we talked before. You got a long list of uh, titles behind your name. So tell me what you do, what your actual title is at the University of Tennessee for those that may not know you. So right now I'm an associate professor in the plant sciences department specializing in uh, turf grass weed science. I'm also the director of the University of Tennessee Weed Diagnostic Center that opened in 2016. Uh, which is an outfit to offer kind of specialized, more in-depth testing. A lot of it's resistance management focused uh, for weeds uh, in turf grass systems. And fingers crossed, I went up for promotion uh, last fall to become a full professor uh, at UT. 
and there's really three check marks that one has to uh, get for that to be executed and I'm two-thirds of the way through I've got the approval from my department uh, and then from the university and the last check mark is a uh, board of trustees vote which comes later this spring and then uh, fingers crossed I'll get my final promotion ever and, and become full professor in August that's a mouthful yeah it's it's uh, <laughs> academia likes acronyms and titles yeah <laughs> I don't know if I uh, if you'll quit the podcast now, but you you know I'm an Alabama fan, right? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Hey, I can I can uh, feel uh, you know feel for you being an Alabama yeah. fan in these parts because I'm a New England Patriots fan and nobody oh likes gosh. them, so it's it's just part you don't of the tell deal. a lot of people that, do you? <laughs> I, I do. I fly the flag high. I yeah. think people know. I mean, I got a hard time this year at the TTA conference. I had my Tom Brady dress socks on, and, yeah. and Chris Sykes I think called me out from the. 15th row for wearing them. Oh, but. my gosh. So what, what's the day in the life like for you, uh, kind of a normal day? Uh, let's see. I mean, one of the things about I, my job as a, as a researcher at the university uh, is that no day looks the same. And that's, that's one of the um, things that I've always liked about it since I was a graduate student. You know, I can remember working for a professor uh, as an undergrad and then going to grad school and just hooked that every day you were doing different things and you might be working on a crabgrass project one day and then something with broadleaf weed control the next day and then you know t a ball mark study the day after that it's just kind of here there and everywhere um, obviously there's some seasonal balance to it so um, you know right now we are finishing our annual bluegrass uh, control trials for the season uh, we start those in the fall of the year at a, a typical um, you know, pre-emergence timing, and we do these statewide, uh, where we'll put applications out from, say, August through March. Uh, we try to do a location in East Tennessee, a location in Middle Tennessee, and a location in West, excuse me, location in West Tennessee every year, uh, because when we have an issue that's, you know, as relevant as annual bluegrass control in turf, I mean, that spans mile marker one to mile marker 400 plus across Tennessee. Uh, we want to have a look at things and how things are performing beyond just the bubble in Knoxville. So, sure. you know, right now we're wrapping all that up and then that'll kind of transition into the summer where we do more, more uh, research with goosegrass and Kalinga, some of the more, you know, summer, summer weed problems that we see uh, on golf course turf and sports field turf. And then the cycle kind of reboots and we right. go back into doing power again. Well, I want to. I want to. I don't know if we got a time to do a deep dive into a lot of the research you're doing, but I want to. I want to touch on some of those things that you that um, that you guys are doing. But talk a little bit about the process and how you guys come up with maybe a research project, or what are some of the thoughts behind the ideas for going into say what are you going to look at or research that year? Yeah, I mean that, that's a great question, and you know it gets back to the scientific method that the first. The first step in the scientific method is is observation, and sure. I remember that uh, I'll remember that for the rest of my life. I got grilled in graduate school uh, when you're doing your PhD. You have to go through a, a written comprehensive exam and an oral comprehensive exam, and basically what that is is you have a committee of mentors, and they can ask you anything they want about anything. Right. And they, so you have a written test. They can ask you anything you want. Why is the sky blue? Why, any, anything they <laughs> want to ask you. And then an oral test. And I got grilled in my oral exam about the steps of the scientific method. So I always remember that observation is the first step. So, 
you know, that's how projects are, are built is through observation. And a key part of that is networking with golf course superintendents, sports turf managers, because they're the, the eyes in the field and having a good relationship with them to understand, well, what's going on? What are you seeing? What are the problems and the struggles that are out there? And what can we do to try to learn more about that to help? Because at the end of the day, that's what the university is for. It's, sure. it's to help. I mean, I think over time, land grant, the mission of the land-grant university is kind of, I don't want to say eroded, but maybe gone a little bit askew. And, and you know, to me, I got into this to help people in the turf grass industry. So we usually start with just kind of observing things on our own and, and you know, talking to superintendents about what they're seeing and then many times projects build out from what's been observed on a golf course or golf courses and then we're just kind of validating those observations with really good research methodology so we can get hard numbers and statistical analysis to you know better concept right so do you do you have a team that you work with or do you do a lot of this on your own? How does that all work? I have a huge team and I would do, uh, the program would be nothing without my team. I have uh, two research technicians, Greg Breeden, uh, who's been with me since I started at UT. Uh, he kind of leads all of our uh, coordination in, in field trial work, both in Knoxville uh, and away from Knoxville. Uh, another gentleman, Javier Vargas, who's worked with me since 2012. Uh, he coordinates all of our uh, greenhouse projects and laboratory projects, and that has really ramped up uh, in recent years as resistance issues have kind of worsened and we've had to look uh, a little bit more in-depth about some of these POA populations or goosegrass populations with um, resistance traits. We had to collect a lot of seed and bulk up these populations for experiments and, and, and Javi does a great job of keeping all that coordinated and organized so we can uh, do some nice work. And then from there, kind of, I've got a graduate student now, uh, Dallas Taylor, she just started a master's uh, last fall. I'll have another um, graduate student starting uh, in about two weeks, I believe. Uh, in early, early May, Devin Carroll, she's going to start her PhD uh, in May, and then several undergrads that, that work within the program yeah. as well. We probably run three to five undergrads, so it does, it takes a huge team to do everything that's involved in running a, a, a pretty robust research program. That seems like, and you manage that singly or do you have uh, as for other professors that are involved so I, I within my program it's I, I I'm kind of the single manager and that's been something that's been an evolution for yeah. me I mean you know you go through school and you know my undergrads in turf grass science my master's is in plant soil and insect science and my PhD is in agronomy you know human resources and people management is none of that right right <laughs> yeah and that's always the hard part and that that was something that I learned right away in my first job after graduate school is that I've got to get better at just being a people manager and a, and a leader and just the the human component and I've tried to uh, not only get better at that myself and it's you know forever will be a work in progress uh, but then for the people who work with me particularly those students trying to give them opportunities to do that while they're a student yeah. you know one of the things that I'm a firm uh, believer in is that you know, if you come to do a graduate degree with me, you have to manage a person to the extent that 
you hire that person, you do the interviews, the hiring, they report to you because that's just something that you need to get a few successful reps at uh, under your belt to be good at. And at the end of the day, you're going to school to learn about turf grass and learn about science. Yeah. And, and that's going to happen. And in some level, it's going to happen almost just osmotically by being there, right? right. You're just going to be around it. I think really what we're, we, we need to do more of in the university is train these young people to just be professionals, yeah. right? In whatever avenue they choose. And they may choose turf and maybe they're in turf for their whole career. Or maybe they're in turf for five years and then a new opportunity comes that's not in turf. I'm, you know, I'm a firm believer that some of the lessons you can learn uh, just through the process are applicable to other disciplines. Yeah. So how, so how did you get interested in this line of work? I mean, and I and, and sort of where I'm coming at is I, I grew up playing golf and I love playing golf. And so ultimately I wanted to be a golf course architect and that, that was, I, I mean, still a passion of mine, but it's not something that I pursued. I ended up in the superintendent side and I got some really cool advice and I did that. And I, and I've sort of been in the industry ever since. I mean, I, I, when I was 15, I was parking carts and picking the range and working at a golf course. So it's sort of been all I've known. And then I just kind of, my expertise led me down the road of turf and all the things that go inside. So how did, how, tell me a little bit about how that sort of came about for you. Sure. So not all that dissimilar. Um, grew up around it, so I'm originally from Massachusetts. Uh, my father ran a lawn care company, and he was a one-man operation. So yeah. he did the business side and the application side. Uh, he had 300 or so properties uh, every year, and, and that's so I was kind of always around turf grass at that level. Uh, he was really big, a really big golfer and then got me into golf really young, you know, six, seven years old and, uh, had played golf throughout high school and, uh, you know, kind of thought I was going to be the next Tiger Woods and that, <laughs> that didn't really work out. Yeah. Um, and you know, I went through when I was looking at colleges, thought, well, I was going to do professional golf management just to be in the golf industry. Sure. And you know, at the time, having a hard time breaking 85, you know, my dad <laughs> pulled me aside and was like, maybe, maybe professional golf management isn't going to be what yeah. you need to be doing. And, and, you know, and he was right. So I looked at schools with landscape architecture, mm -hmm. very much like you thinking, well, Hey, I really like golf yeah. landscape architecture that would lead into golf course design. Maybe I'll do that. And I started at Penn state as an undergrad in the landscape architecture program. And I was in that major for 16, 16 or 17 days until the first uh, homework assignment was due and realized really quickly that uh, landscape architecture was a lot more than golf course design. <laughs> and uh, I did not have uh, much artistic ability at that time yeah. and uh, transferred into turf grass and, and really never looked back. That's funny because uh, I tell everybody the story. I started out in civil engineering. Wow. And... The, re the only reason why was because the school I got a, a scholarship to go play golf, they didn't have an architect, they didn't have a degree in landscape architecture or anything. So um, one of the uh, architects that I had been kind of, he'd been kind of helping me, Gary Roger Baird, he said, he, he, had, he hired, uh, his, one of his assistants was a civil engineer. And he said, well, that'll, you know, that's somehow, you can get that, you can get to this route by going that way. And I, 
I was in that program for about a year or so until I ran into calculus. <laughs> and I struggled. My, my, my roommate was a math major. I studied harder for I never studied harder for a class in my entire life. I made an F the first semester and a D the second. And I said, put me in, in uh, grounds management. I'm done with this. <laughs> and I just, man, I was like, golly, I, you know, and that, that sort of derailed my architect career. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'd love to go back and do it. But, I, you know, I just think not to go down that hole, but I think the architect side is now it's more about renovations and, you know, they're not building golf courses anymore. And so yeah. that's a, you got to be, you got to be pretty dug in in that field, I think. And there's a heart. That's, I know there's some new guys coming up, and they learn under the best. But I didn't get that far, you know. So, yeah. so w- let's talk a little bit about some of the research. What uh, what's what's maybe a significant research project you've got going on right now? And tell me, you know, sort of where it is and kind of what you're feelings are on it so the the most significant project we have right now it's a it's an annual bluegrass control project does that seem i don't mean to interrupt you but does that seem to be the biggest issue uh is it more like our area wide or is it something that the the rest of the country because we we i know it's a problem in a lot of different areas but so the the project is a national project i mean so this is a usda united states department of agriculture a funded project for five years and it's it's exciting on many many levels um it's a 5.2 million dollar project oh wow uh and that for the usda to not only fund a turf grass project but to fund a turf grass project to that level it's never happened before and and that is monumentally important for the future of turf grass and the future of turf grass research moving forward yeah. uh, to the extent that there's been a transition to recognize that hey this problem in turf really warrants a, 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 an in-depth look uh, over time to get some answers and um, you know I know the Crop Science Society of America uh, they've they've been really promoting the project quite well to the extent like I'm supposed to speak at a congressional briefing series uh, in October on this project. So it's, uh, it's been really important for turf. The other part of it that's super cool is that there's 15 universities involved. Yeah, I was going to ask um, if it was, uh, so universities. to bring together 15 universities working on the same project. Uh, that's something I've never been involved in before. And, and, uh, that has just been really, really I want to ask you to name them all. Uh, I mean, it's, <laughs> and, and it's, it's, it's Southeast heavy. Yeah. Um, because, you know, herbicide resistance in annual bluegrass has certainly blown up since I've been in Tennessee, and, and that's true kind of throughout the southeast. Uh, so there's definitely a, a, a southeast weight to the endeavor, but, I mean, we're, you know, Rutgers is involved, Penn State's involved, Oregon State's involved, Purdue's involved, Arizona's involved. So there is national coverage yeah. uh, in what's going on, but th- that has really been uh, encompassing a, a lot of our time. Um, and will for the next, you know, five to probably six years uh, with that effort. In Tennessee, one of the things that we're super excited about is we got some funding from uh, Golf Course Superintendents Association of America and the Tennessee GCSAA uh, supported the project as well uh, to do a look at annual bluegrass just in Tennessee golf courses. Uh, So many may remember uh, two years ago, 
uh, our team went out you know we talked about the importance of a team earlier yeah between january 1st and february 14th of 2018 we visited 90 golf courses in tennessee wow we took the state we divided it into three regions so east middle and west uh, we took all of the golf courses within that region that had either Bermuda grass or Zoysia grass as their base fairway turf. We made a big pool. We randomly selected the golf courses from that pool within each region. And then when we arrived at the golf course, we randomly selected a hole. And then we collected any POA plants that were present uh, above a density of like, I think like 11 plants per square yard is probably the best way to describe it. Brought all those back to the lab, grew them out for seed. Uh, planted all of them at the same time so we we learned that there's differences in annual bluegrass you know time to germination from POA from West Tennessee as compared to middle and east yeah. the growth rate from seed is different and now we've been doing herbicide resistant screening uh, we're still kind of in the middle like tomorrow one of the things I have to do with Javier is is uh, rate our ALS resistant screening for the ALS inhibitors like revolver and monument and what have you yeah um, but right now we know that uh, over 60% of the POA on golf courses in Tennessee either is resistant to glyphosate or is becoming resistant to glyphosate. Sure. Uh, for Barricade, for example, it's over 55% of the POA in Tennessee is already resistant or is becoming resistant to Barricade, hmm. uh, which are staggering numbers when you start thinking about that and the uh, importance of those tools. But one of the things that's exciting for us is you know, to date, this has been done almost on a case-by-case -case basis where, you know, you got a problem with what you think is herbicide resistance. Maybe you send the plants in and we confirm it via a test, or maybe it's an extension visit. We do a little bit of, you know, digging into spray records and field work, but we didn't have any real numbers on, like, how widespread is this? Right. And I think having real numbers on how widespread it is, at least my hope, is going to facilitate make that conversation about changing what you're doing and an improved management plan uh, maybe go a little bit more swiftly than it would if, well, we only have certain cases of it that are known. So is the resistance, so how does the resistance happen in the, in the plant? What, what, talk me through a little bit of that. So the, the best explanation I've ever heard is if you think about the herbicide as a sieve, Right. And, and, and bear with me. Sure. So, you know, you got a population. Of hey, this is might be the most technical podcast I do, but you, I got guys who are going to dive into this stuff. Yeah. So. I mean, we, we can go as deep down the rabbit <laughs> sure. hole as you want. I don't think we want to get into DNA point mutations well, or anything. You, 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 just, might, you just take it wherever well, you want to go and we'll see if we blow somebody's minds out. Of the, uh, <laughs> the, the best explanation I ever heard is the herbicide's a sieve. And if you yep. think about, you know, doesn't matter what golf course you're on, you've got a population of POA that's on that or any weed. It doesn't really matter the weed. The concept's the same. Sure. Well, we, we, we put a herbicide application down, right? What's that going to do? Well, it's going to sieve out the susceptible plants, right? So the susceptible plants are going to die. But if there's one in a million or one in 10 million that have some mechanism to survive, that's going to be left on top of the sieve. It's going to survive and it's going to set seed. And then that one plant, maybe it's then four in a million. And then if you continue to use the same sieve over time, eventually that builds up to be four and then eight and then 16. Right. And then that's when we start to see, well, hey, I've used, I've used Barricade for 12 plus years and now Barricade's not working anymore. 
that's the same sieve, right? So right. you've just kind of laid down the same sieve and you've sieved out all the susceptible plants to now what's left are these plants that have a capability to make it through that treatment. And barricade's going to be off the table or glyphosate's going to be off the table. I mean, I think we've seen this in the ultra dwarfs happen really fast with, you know, applications of things like revolver where we don't have a lot of things that we can put on a Bermuda grass green yeah. for a post-emergence treatment in the springtime. And revolver worked really well and it does. It's a great herbicide. And sure you continued use of that just does the same thing. It just sieves out those that are susceptible and anything that may have a, a mechanism to survive is going to make it. So what is, what are you guys leaning towards as far as a recommendation um, to sort of divert this problem or to cure it if there is a cure? Yeah. I mean, the, that's a hard question to answer. And, and, I mean, I think we learn stuff every year. Sure. So, so that recommendation is always evolving, right. right? You know, and one of the things about having 400 miles of interstate and doing statewide work is you got a lot of time chasing the radiator cap to, to think about what you're seeing and what it all means. So, I mean, I would say from this year, you know, our biggest takeaways have been that a standalone application, so you're going to apply one product or one treatment, and that's going to be what you do for POA. It's probably not going to be a thing anymore. Yeah. And, you know, we're in a world now where we need to either be using a mixture uh, of two different modes of action. Mode of action is just essentially how that herbicide works to control the weed. Uh, so, a, you know, a mixture that's going to be applied later on in the fall that may be something with pre and post activity or kind of a one two punch program where. We're going to make one application in the fall and clean up anything that comes through in the springtime. I kind of think that's where we're at moving forward with, with POA management. The other kind of layer to that, and, and we have several in our state that are already doing this, is you really need to be thinking probably two years ahead. Yeah. So, you know, you know, I was getting calls last fall from superintendents that are saying, okay, you know, I know what I'm going to do this year but I'm, I'm working on my plan for 2020 because I don't want to use the same tools again and potentially worse in a, a resistance situation. Did you, did you see this coming or, or is this something that, that people behind the scenes kind of saw because you get, it's so easy to get set in your ways with you find a product that works every, you know, around here, especially with all the warm season grasses, you want things to be clean. If you're not overseeding, you're mm -hmm. doing things. So is this, is that something you guys kind of saw coming? Because I think from a, if you're, if you're, I don't, I don't want to call anybody out, but I mean, this would be a normal practice to kind of rotate things anyways, would be my thought. Cause that's similarly what I did. Not that I did it because I thought I was going to have resistance. I just thought it was the right thing to do is kind of rotate things in and out. But is it, is that, is that a fair question to say, is this something you guys saw coming or, or is it just something we kind of fell into? Well, I mean, I think, I think, row crop agriculture it can be a predictor of yeah. things that we'll see in turf grass yeah. uh, that's certainly true in product development and technology development that things get developed for those markets first and then yeah. make their way into into smaller markets which turf would fall into um, so resistance issues in row crops have been numerous for several years uh, you know my first kind of look at resistance in Tennessee it was in West Tennessee at a, at a golf course I remember was there on an extension visit with my colleague, Dr. Samples, and 
we were looking at root zone construction on this golf. They had modified their greens, and uh, we were just kind of looking at some black layer issues and greens and just root zone profiles. And we're walking away from the last green, and the superintendent pulls me aside. He goes, you ever heard of Roundup not killing POA? And I was like, not in turf grass, you know, in other systems for sure. He goes, well, I've got plenty of areas where the POA doesn't die when I put a lot of Roundup on it. <laughs> and I was like, well, let's go have a look at that right yeah, now. Let's go and, take and, a look at that. And we, uh, <laughs> that's how it all started yeah. and, and took plants back and, you know, did the classical process of collecting seed and then replanting those and putting what's called a dose response. So you start with a really low rate and you just tick that rate up. I mean, and we got eight, 10, 12 times more than the label rate and the plants were fine. Yeah. And that's, you know, that was the first report of herbicide resistance in Tennessee. And I think, I think it's one of those things where the more we started to look for it, the more we were finding and the more we talked about it, the more people came forward. I know in the early years of talking about resistance, it, without fail, give a talk, you know, and this time maybe we had two reported cases in the state. Yeah. Somebody pulled you aside after like, hey, I, I think I think I might have something for you, you know, why don't you kind of come by and have a look. And that kind of snowballed sure. to the point, I think, of where we are now. <laughs> and, you know, and the other thing, you know, you brought up the idea of, of rotation and mixture. And what's been a head scratcher for me is that in turf, we're really good at doing that with fungicides. Really good. Yeah. Why we don't apply the same thinking to what we do with weed management, I don't know. I mean, I, I show this slide set at, at uh, I've sorted in several seminars in the state and at GIS where, you know, if you look at a fungicide management plan for a year, there's a ton of thought that's put into that, you know, rotation, mixture, diversify mode of action throughout a season. And you contrast that with, well, I'm going to put out some Ronstar in the spring and maybe I'll put out some barricade in the fall and that's, that's what I'm going to do. Yeah. It's shocking, the lack of <laughs> diversity, right? Like, shocking. Do you I, think I, it's because diseases are, have to, tend to be more detrimental as far as turf loss? or and there, you could, it's a, It could be way more uh, job-specific in terms of not having one. I, I, think, well, I think that's part of it, <laughs> yeah. right? I mean, certainly putting greens is more high-dollar oh, real estate, yeah. and it's, it's the benchmark by which you know, really all golf courses are judged. Yeah. And I think one of the things that shifted the conversation with, with weed management has been the fact that we have poa resistance issues on greens now. And yeah. that is really, really concerning because we don't have a lot of things we can use other than, you know, mechanical interventions, which nobody wants to do. I want to come back to that for a second, but what, what's the end game with the research as far as the POA, the annual bluegrass research? Are you trying to get to a point where you, they make recommendations or just trying to understand it better? What's the end game? Well, with the, with the Tennessee one, what we wanted to do, you know, the main objective was to just get some hard numbers about what's going on in our state on sure. golf courses. And then the thought is, well, let's come back and do this same project five or ten years from now and let's see if those numbers change. But we needed to get a line in the sand to right. say, here's where we're at. And now we can go out, have educational programs, and talk about this, and, and re-monitor and see if we've met some impact in doing that. And if not, refine what we're doing in, 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 in terms of education and communication and, and do it again. The national project, uh, because it's so much bigger in scope, uh, is a lot more involved. So it, 
it is not only documenting kind of the extent of resistance across the United States, but it's more, once we document that, now let's get into how do we management, manage this. So, and anyone who works in resistance will tell you that the, the answer to resistance management does, probably doesn't come from a jug. A, a jug can be part <laughs> of it, yeah. but the, 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 the cure, if you will, isn't gonna come from that jug. Right. So, I mean, we have projects right now, we're doing a project um, as part of that national USDA grant where you know, we go out every 100 degree days of heat accumulation. So it's just a measure of how much warming we're getting in the spring. We collect with scissors the annual bluegrass seed in every plot, and then we'll go back, we'll germinate all that seed to try to identify, well, is there a point in the spring where we know that the germination or the uh, germination viability of that seed is going to be really high. Right. And maybe that's a time that we leave the buckets on and we collect clippings because we don't want to redistribute that seed back into the soil and perpetuate a problem. Maybe that's something where we could be real strategic, target a window to do that, and that is a time That'll, that would help in resistance management. Um, obviously, uh, those listening are, are probably going to be familiar with phrase mowing. I mean, if you've been on Twitter, sure. you've seen a phrase yeah. mower work. Um, there's a phrase mowing component to this national USDA project. We started to do a little bit of that uh, here in Tennessee, Tennessee specific. And, you know, that's been helpful because it's essentially mechanical removal uh, of annual bluegrass seed uh, from the soil uh, in the summertime. So, you know, that can be useful. There's some limitations to it, particularly when you get into a golf course setting with undulation and slope and terrain yeah. that I think we still have to work through. Uh, and also there's a question of what do you do with all the debris? You know, it, the, the trash that's generated is, is monumental. If you've ever <laughs> seen one of those machines run. And then if you think about it, well, we've got this rich organic material that's you know a mixture of bermuda grass stolons or zoysia grass stolons you know organic matter some soil and then all this weed seed and let's say that that weed seed has resistant genetics in it yeah am i just going to go dump it somewhere else and make it somebody else's problem i mean that's i think we have, that's another question we don't have answered is what if we if phrase mowing is going to help us what do we do with the debris to make that just not another vehicle to perpetuate our problem onto somebody else. You know, we have another component to this where, you know, we, we, we have seed from Tennessee POA, but we'll be receiving 15 other states. So we'll have 15 different populations uh, of annual bluegrass seed from across the country. And we will be burying that seed. So we have these bags that you put it in and you bury that seed in the soil at different depths and then you leave it in over time and then you pull you know at, at six months you pull bags out at a year you pull bags out at two years you pull bags out so we'll better understand well how viable is annual bluegrass seed in the soil and does it change as a function of how deeply it's buried does it change by how long it's left in the soil you know because all of that seed bank management is going to be really important for dealing with an annual weed population like annual bluegrass yeah. and then what's really like super fun about the national level scale of this thing is that we'll not only see in Tennessee is this working but like is it the same in Florida is it the same in Arizona yeah. is it the same in Indiana or New Jersey uh it's that's the part that's just super exciting and it's crazy you start <laughs> you start you know I don't want to go in in a global warming deep dive because I don't know that I even understand all that but 
I was at a, a visit two weeks ago in Brooklyn, New York, at a cemetery called Greenwood Cemetery. It's a national historic, plate, historic park. And I was looking at Bermuda grass contamination in Kentucky bluegrass at a cemetery in Brooklyn, New York, which was, I, I mean, I tweeted some of the photos. Yeah. I, it was like I saw a ghost. I, I didn't know where I was. I mean, so I think, you know, if, if we can agree that maybe there's climate weirding, right? Yeah. Just things are just strange now and different than they were before to look at these things like POA management and turf on a national scale, I think is really important. Yeah. Bermuda doesn't seem to shock me. That, that's a, that's a grass on a whole nother level. And I, it just, it, I mean, it's surprising that it would be in New York, but I mean, maybe not. I don't know. I mean, it's just, that's a crazy one. Yeah, it's crazy. Is there an economic impact to this? That's uh, you can sort of that, that clubs in general can, are, is it a big enough, issue that it's causing like clubs some problems is that a i mean i don't know where i'm really going with that question but it, i mean you guys are spending a lot of time to solve or look at this problem where is where do you see the sports turfs the golf courses being impacted i i don't know that we have hard numbers sure. right to to say that it is going to cost a club you know x thousands of do- resistance will cost a club x thousands of dollars I think we could get there. Yeah, uh, we do have numbers on the cost of resistance of, of ma- managing a weed like poa before resistance as compared to afterwards, and I don't think it's coincidental that you know where we have widespread resistance is some of our cheaper chemistries, right? Yep. You know, it, you know to to put sixteen or thirty two ounces of, of Roundup out on dormant Bermuda grass is a really effective treatment and it's really economical. Yeah. And that, you know, if you think about losing that through resistance and now you're into whether it's another non selective that's more you know, a higher price point or uh, some of our more premier pre emergence products, I mean it's the 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 numbers go up. I mean the cases I can think of maybe a ten X increase just in the product cost before and after resistance um so that you know that's part of it i think that you know if if things get really bad you know renovation comes into the conversation yeah i I don't know uh that that has happened quite yet um but i could see scenarios where it it, it might um i think for me though you know and, and this is another thing we were talking about on the interstate recently is that you know why is this so important well, at the end of the day, I think some of it's superintendent psyche, right? You know, <laughs> you, 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 you know, if, if you can have a really good pole management plan, you're going to start the year in really good shape, Yeah. you know, and, and all your effort in the springtime is going to be, Hey, I want to get this golf course ready because I'm going to have a lot of play around the masters Yeah. and we're going to do everything we can to get the golf course up and going and as good a shape as possible, you know, going into masters week when my play is going to, going to jump up. And that is, you know, the golf. You know, the golfers are happy. You can be singular focused on what you're doing. You, you contrast that with, oh man, I you know I put out these poet treatments in the fall. They all failed. I'm super weedy. It's March 5th. I got angry golfers, maybe an angry greens committee, angry ownership. Why does the place look so bad? Trying to clean all that up, and then the cleanups are really hard because we don't have a ton of right. really effective post cleanup treatments that are out there. And you know, maybe things are even more complex where I got bentgrass greens and, a, and warm season surrounds and that limits what I can do even further. 
and you're trying to you know deal with all that chaos while also trying to get a golf course set up and be ready to go for the the golf season it's just let's start the year with some momentum yeah you know and and i think i think that's a real big part of it because you know i'm not a mental health expert by any stretch but i do think that's often an unaddressed part of our industry is that you know how you're feeling day to day as the guy that's managing a golf course that's going to affect the end product you know and and I think we need to do what we can to make that part of the conversation. Man, I, I can't say enough how much that's going to hit home with a lot of guys, especially in the golf side uh, in our area. Because I, speaking from experience, it is amazing to me how uh, much stress you have in this time of year with spring green up, transition. The golf course is not like you want it. You're clean, you know, some – Many golf courses are experiencing flooding or wetness, and uh, dormant Bermuda is just kind of sitting there, but not doing. And, and but yet we get a 75 degree day. Masters is around the corner, and your greens chairman is calling you because he wants something done. I mean, it is just a, a revolving circle of just anxiety and stress and trying to get people. You know, it's it's the hurry up and wait mentality, and and so you saying that is going to be refreshing to a lot of people that someone who doesn't necessarily who feels the pain but doesn't see it on a daily basis man i'm telling you what there's a lot of guys out there that that are going through it and like man just get me to the green grass and and where i can do something with it you know and and the stress of what superintendents do and and sports field managers and and you know you know everybody involved in the industry it's 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 overwhelming to me i mean i know my colleague brandon horvath and i we we joke like we're on this side because we knew we couldn't be on the other side like, like day to day there's no way that to put you know to, to deliver conditions day in and day out like just not having faith that you could do it right yeah. the, it is it is an unbelievably stressful job and and just i think our job at the university is to try to find things to to help alleviate a lot of that stress because it, it's we can work together on that well, I, it's a lot. It's a stressful job. It's not for the faint of heart, and uh, and there's a lot of good guys out there. But I know what they're going through, and I mean, just to address it is one thing. I hope they hear us and realize we're pulling for them, and you know, just keep pushing because there's good days ahead. Yeah, you know? for sure. Let's talk about the greens for a minute because that is, you know, in golf, um, it's it's the like you said, the real estate that really it really uh, rings the cash register, and it's the it's the one that people make or break. Um, We've seen a shift in our area over several years uh, with the, being a predominantly bent grass area to now ultra dwarfs. And the POA is an issue, the annual bluegrass. And so when I was, when I was, I was pretty specific on, um, and I may get my, you know, I, we use revolver, mm-hmm. and, but I also use monument and some other things. And whether I could or couldn't, you know, I, you know, is one, you know, but at the same time, um, what is, did that be, is that becoming an issue? I, I'm more curious about pre-emergent for like ultra dwarfs and things like that. Do you have an opinion or is there somebody that's doing that? I played around with uh, barricade mm-hmm. some, but I, I, I've never really gotten comfortable with doing it uh, more than just kind of experimental. Is there some areas where guys can maybe look at doing some pre-emergent on their ultra dwarfs? Yeah, I mean, I, there, you're right. There's not There's not a real big window for that right now in terms of having a lot of tools to do it i mean 
you know, curb would probably fit that use pattern and there's curb labeling for the ultra dwarfs. Uh, but I know there's heartburn about that app. You know, yeah. you just think about, you know, you know, greens can be, greens are stressed. You're in a shoulder season on Bermuda grass when you're making that app. And that's a stressful time just from a, a pathogen management standpoint on the, on the ultra dwarfs. I know in middle Tennessee, we've had a lot of take all issues on the ultra dwarfs in recent years. And to lay down a, a you know a, a product that works on 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 roots of plants i mean yeah. that's it's a lot of heartburn yeah and and i think those who have been forced into that through resistance issues or you know it's one of the they don't have any alternatives and, yeah. and they've done that i mean i have a lot of concern right now personally that you know the out for a lot of these resistance issues particularly on greens has been to move into curb well, going back to the sieve concept, we're now just gonna if we can if if that's the out and we just ride that curb horse as long as we run and ride it, we're just gonna now be selecting for curb resistant individuals, which has been documented. Yeah. I know my colleague in Georgia, Patrick McCullough, has documented several curb resistant POA populations. So that to me is kind of where do we go next? I mean, we've do, we've done some things internally that I, I can't really talk about right now, but you know we're there's some promise there for i think ultra dwarf management we got to do more work on our side before we can you know really make widespread recommendations on it one of the things that's fascinating for me is that you know doing these plant collections not only for this tennessee gcsaa product project but for this national poa project uh the the covers that we use on ultra dwarf greens it just seems like you may not have a lot of POA and then you have two or three covering events and you turn that, take that cover off and it's, it's like POA fertilizer. Oh, they, yeah. they, it jumps out of the ground. Yeah. And that, that is just been really interesting to me to see that, you know, uh, with covering and how it affects POA. Yeah. I, th I think there's a lot going on there, but you get a warming effect. Uh, you know the Bermuda's not doing a whole lot, and then all of a sudden you get a couple of days moisture in the ground, take the covers off, and boom, you've got you've got a yeah. <laughs> you've got a poa farm sitting there. Yeah. And, you know, and and it's been a, it's been an issue. Uh, you know that and goosegrass was always something that I battled, and and I feel like those are one and the same. When you, you're talking about resistance, is there is that something you feel? Goosegrass, like yeah, coming goose, on. Goosegrass would definitely if poa's one A, goosegrass is one B. Yeah. Um, you know, we don't have as, as much work on goosegrass yet. I mean, I know we've got some priming resistant cases in the state that not only we've worked on to, to, to publish on, but have come in through the Weed Diagnostic Center. Um, you know, we have a population that was sent to us uh, last year for testing. We haven't done any work with it yet because uh, we're still going through the seed bulking up process, but uh, for, AL, for revolver resistance in goosegrass. Yeah. Um, so we'll be working on that in 2019. Uh, there's a lot of chatter in the industry about about Ronstar resistance in goosegrass. Uh, I know that there's a confirmed case in Virginia. There's one confirmed case in Alabama. Uh, there's a lot of smoke on that around that fire, if you will. Um, we have not run into any in Tennessee just yet, um, but that doesn't mean they're not out there. It's yeah. just we haven't uh, we haven't seen them yet. I think what muddies the water a little bit in the in the goosegrass conversation is. You know, particularly with Ronstar, is when that's applied. It's been a head-scratcher to me, and, and I know why it's done, but, you know, you think about one of, the, one of the most common apps on golf courses in our state is a non-selective in Ronstar that goes out 
last week of January, between yep. last week of January and the middle of February. Yeah. We don't, I mean, it's, you know, we don't see goosegrass until, you know, germination until probably early May. Yeah. A lot of that product's going to be played out by the time that we, we need it to do our work for us. And, you know, the, the workaround for that, I'm not sure. I mean, we've got some work tailored for this summer that's, yeah, just alternative looks, some things that have never, you know, we've never done before trial-wise that we're going to try to put some new concepts together and, and, and programs, if you will, with goosegrass in mind. But it's definitely rising. I mean, I know the loss of Aloxin. Uh, was another thing that has really hurt the yep. grass industry in terms of goosegrass management. So, you know, that was a cleanup for a lot of people. Now there's a loxin resistant goosegrass out there that's been documented. Um, but it's nuts where, where we're at with, you know, we're almost at some level trying to, you know, put a square peg into a round hole. I mean, we did a lot of work with some of the bleacher herbicides for that are really good on goosegrass. And, you know, now you're dealing with Bermuda grass whitening for three to four weeks yeah. to take goosegrass out. And it's, I don't know, it's, it's a tough one. Man, it, it seems like it's, uh, that's going to be something you're going to deal with uh, or be researching for a long time. Yeah. Just resistance to different products. And, man, I, I, don't, I don't necessarily know where I I don't know if I one if I have a good feeling about that going forward, and two, where 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 it all comes in full circle, and you feel comfortable about doing anything. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the where we're going, and if you know, for those who have been to our field day, they've seen this, and if you come in 2019, you'll see it as well. We've tried to move away from the approach of look, you know, showing well. Here's all the options out there for this one week right and they're all single shot options and yeah. we've started to really show more programs of okay i'm managing turf i want to go january to december as weed free or as close to that as i possibly can and i want to do that in a way that i'm i'm mixing i'm rotating i'm using multiple modes of action i'm diversifying how do i do that yeah and and that and that's really what we show is is I think this year we probably have 20, 25 different programs on the ground that some of them feature new chemistry, some of them feature chemistry that's been in our state for 25 or 30 years. Um, and the idea is to, to show the turf manager there's a lot of ways you can do this. And you just kind of have to put the mental capital in in advance to sit down and, and, and build that program going into early order or whenever you get your products for the upcoming season. And, and to me, I think that's that's where we need to go is is to get individuals doing that, you know, thinking programmatically. I give a lot of talks about programmatic thinking. And, you know, I'll contend that the number one thing that is a benefit from doing that is you have a chance to always get better, yeah. right? And, and, and who doesn't want to always get better? You know, you know, you go through, and I'd encourage anybody listening to this, you know, in 2019, you know, take notes. You know, your, your, your programs are in play, right? I'm right. sure by the time that this goes live, guys are going to have their pre's down and, and maybe, maybe even a sequential app, who knows? And, you know, they're going to have on the shelf what they're going to have for summer cleanups. And maybe they even know what they're going to do pole-wise as we get into the fall also. But you can take notes throughout the year about successes and failures. And then you get into November, December, conference season, use those notes to then 
build a better program based on what you did the previous season, right? Yeah. I think far too often we chalk it up to bad weather, spray applicator wasn't on his game that day or who or what have you. And that's probably not all that helpful yeah. in a world where we have weeds evolving resistance to what we're doing. So I think that that programmatic kind of shift is, is an important mindset change. And, you know, I, I'm a, uh, you know, I'm a, I want to say I'm a big reader, but I read regularly. And one of the, the books that I've read in the past few years that has blew me away. And it's now anybody who works for me has read this book and, and students read this book uh, is Mindset by Carol Dweck. And she talks a lot about fixed mindset versus open mindset. And, you know, fixed mindset individuals, you know, feel that their skills and abilities are they're, they're locked in from birth, you know, and, and you know, the, the classical examples are like, well, you know, I'm, I'm not I'm, I'm not good with numbers. I'm not good at math. Right. Um, or, you know, I'm not very artistic. And we know that if you practice math, you know, you, you don't you don't come out of the womb as in, in you know, two years old and, you know, trig. Right. right? Like, <laughs> at, you know, if you study, you yeah. get better at math. And the same is true with art. If you if you try to get better, you'll get better artistically if you put the work in to do that. Uh, open mindset people or, or growth mindset people, if you if, uh, to use the correct term, they feel that their skills and abilities are always evolving over time, that they can change and evolve and get better. And I think one of the things I've seen in my time in the turfgrass industry is we're, we're kind of a fixed mindset business. Right. And, you know, I'm trying to encourage turfgrass managers to be a little bit more growth mindset of just because you've done it this way for three years, four years, or What's even more problematic at times is just because the club down the street does it this way doesn't mean you have to do it this way. Yeah. You know, this is your That's ag- a failing mindset. This is your agronomic yeah. program. Own it and 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 make these calls. You know, your QB one on your agronomic program yep. of how you're gonna do this, go be QB one, right? And 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 have that growth mindset to to always kind of evolve and build moving forward. Yeah, that um you talk about that um you know, sort of a program approach. It's like the same thing you said about the disease. You know, we're doing that already. Just shift your mindset into your weed, you know, control and you, you'd be good to go. Just yeah. put a good plan together and roll with it. And don't necessarily think that what's the guy down the street's doing is going to work for you. Yeah. I mean, it's we're we're all in different climates, microclimates, all got different things going on. And, and um, I've always said, I feel like around here that I would lean towards doing three applications not to get down you know just specifically for me it just seems like it adding another application at some timing because like you said we uh you know if you apply every if you've always applied it in january late january early february and you're not getting the results you want well you got to shift your thinking you got to you got to look yeah. at maybe reapplying or adding a little bit more or you know what you know Doing something different because you're not getting what you want, and you know that's that's the definition of insanity. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> right. No, that's that's right. And and who knows? I mean, this may be the year that it becomes really clear that we need to do that. I mean, with the, I think Knoxville's well over 19 inches of rain so far yeah. uh, in 2019. I mean, I tweeted out some data that I uh, had looked into several weeks ago that in the we got a year's worth of rainfall in the six month period between I believe like. September September 1 to February 1, or I may have the month slightly off, but you can check Twitter on that. Yeah. Um, 
yeah, we got we got a year's worth of rainfall in six months. I mean, it's it's been wild to see. So th this may be the year that 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 becomes really clear that that's what we have to sure. do. I don't know. Well, hopefully this rainfall is not normal, but uh, you just never know around here. I've never I don't know what normal is in Tennessee weather. <laughs> not, I have no clue. Yeah. What so what other um, what other things are y'all looking at as far as what are maybe a couple of higher uh, higher sort of profile or something more, you know, significant research that you're looking at outside of the resistance. So, I mean, we always do, we always try to do things with new chemistry. And that's one of the nice things about, and one of the things that hooked me into this job as a, as a student was you were working with technology before it came to the industry. And I think that's one of the key roles of what, what the university does is that, you know, we can work with, you know, herbicide technology or, or, or equipment technology or, or what have you before it becomes available so that when superintendents get it or sports turf managers, we can provide some guidance of here's, here's best practice, you know, here's some things maybe you want to stay away from. Uh, and that, again, that's really what a land-grant university is supposed yeah. to be for is, is, is to do that. So, you know, we're looking at stuff right now that's, that's you know, four, maybe four or five years away. Yeah. Um, and, and who knows, I mean, with the EPA process and the timelines there, you know, maybe that four or five years becomes six or seven, I, I don't know. Um, but that's, that's a big area of what we do too. And, you know, for those who come to field day or any other event at the university, you know, you won't see that stuff because that's, yeah. that's uh, to the side because it's not available yet, but it's, it's definitely going on on the weed science side with me, my colleague, Brandon Horvath on the fungicide side. Uh, it's kind of the same token with a lot of early stage things that, that we'll see down the road as, as things make their way into turf. And, you know, I mentioned coming to the uh, field day. One of the things that we're, we're trying new this year, again, to, to further the, the message that the university is there to help. And, you know, we're the land grant seat for the state. So the mission of a land grant university is to, is to be there for the citizens of the state. We are hosting uh we have one in may uh and one in july and i've got the idea from i was talking with uh, uh, uh ryan swilling who i'm sure you know mm -hmm. and he had been to an event it was called pop in for a point where you could go in over lunch and there'd be a presentation and um you'd get a pesticide credit and i really like that concept and yeah. so we're going to try this that we're going to pick a, you know, it's two friday afternoons and, and there'll be plenty of tweets and emails and and whatnot in advance to let you know more details um, but the tennessee turfgrass association has supported it and it's going to be one hour you come out to the research farm in knoxville and we're just going to walk plots and it'll be myself and my assistant greg and it'll be and there'll be no signs it won't be like field day it's just yeah. going to be a really informal Here's what we're here's what's going on, what we're working on, and take questions, just kind of really casual, just to open the door to the university to let people know that it's it's there for them. I mean, yeah. that's that's why we do what we do. Talk a little bit about the support you guys get. Um, do you get support from product companies, equipment companies, um, local, regional chapter? Uh, superintendents, sports turf. Talk a little bit about that and how that sort of intertwines with all you guys do. So all of the above, yeah. um, you know, and, and that has really grown um, over time. And I started at Tennessee in 2008. And uh, since then, now it's 2019. And it definitely seen upticks in, 
in all of those areas. I mean, the, the growth of TTA in that time has really been uh, really impressive in terms of, uh, you know, there's a TTA endowment now to support the turfgrass program at the university in perpetuity. I mean, that's that's huge. That, that's huge. Yeah. And, you know, the fact that, you know, there's matching funds available to do some of these national grants through GCSAA and whatnot, that's, that's huge. Um, you know, the the agrochemical side, you know, clearly, you know, they're supporting development work because they want, uh, you know, feedback and insight on their technology. So that's there as well. I know, uh, you know, on the equipment side, you know, uh, John Sorokin, my colleague, he does a lot of the equipment work and mower work, and he's been well supported for the equipment companies uh, as well. And, and we're like, we're really lucky. I mean, Tennessee is a, it's a great state a great industry. I mean, I, I couldn't be happier with the, the position I have. I mean, love going to work every day and, and just, just am really, really happy here. And I think, you know, those that have been involved in, in the, whether it's the association side through TGCSA or TTA, you know, when you see the growth, yeah. it's exciting. And when, and if you go to meetings in other states and you kind of, I think that's really helpful because you kind of see like, wow, we're, we're, we're doing okay in Tennessee. I mean, we can always get better, and yeah. there's a lot of room for growth to get better for sure, and I think that's true everywhere. But, you know, we're, it's, it's been really good, and, and I, I think that's a testament to everybody involved. And, you know, if you're listening and you're on the fence about, you know, you want to do TGCSA board, whether it's East, Middle, or West, or you want to do TTA, I mean, there's a great opportunity there uh, to get involved and, and have a real impact uh, moving forward in our state. Do you, do you go through a, um, uh, request process or do there things you guys need it from time to time? And how do you get that communication out to say, you know, you need support for a certain area or particular thing you might, you guys might need. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's nothing formal. And I think, again, that speaks to the connection between the industry and the university. Yeah. I know, you know, when we, wanted to go do the golf course visits for the, the Tennessee level resistance project. It was phone calls and texts, no problem, come on, just yeah. do, door wide open. Um, and that's been the same for this national uh, SCRI project. And, and that's been more of an endeavor because it's more than golf. It's, you know, it's golf, sod production, sports turf, and lawn care. And, and again, the, just that connection with the industry and the university has been good that it's made that process very seamless. Uh, in terms of need, in, like equipment and whatnot, you know, it's again, it's personal communication and, and, and just talking to people about what we need. And, 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 you know, luckily there's there's a lot of resources there to help. You know, I should I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about the rounds for research program. Yeah. I know that's active now. Sure. Um, you know, we have been one of the leaders in terms of states. Gen not only generating rounds for research dollars to support the university, but then putting those dollars into action. I mean, we we received from the rounds for research program. A, you know, a, wasn't a brand new, but it was a new to us uh, greens mower uh, that has been hugely helpful for what sure. we do at the research plots with greens management, and just kind of be able be a, being able to maintain our plot areas you know, at a level, I mean, we're not a golf course and we never will be, but we're going to make our best effort to get as close as we can. Um, so that's been really helpful. I mean, they're continuing, they put money into the TTA endowment, uh, as well. And, you know, this year you know, we had a set of verticut reels for that mower, just, yeah. just, you know, come through 
you know, those channels to help us to better manage our organic matter accumulation and whatnot in our ultra dwarfs. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's again, this is a great state and a, a great industry with a lot of great folks working in the industry. And, you know, I know I speak for everybody at UT, you know, John Sorok and Brandon Horvath, Tom Samples, you know, you name it, that we, we, we all love what we do and, and we love yeah. work, doing what we do here. Well, we all appreciate you. I know you guys do, you know, countless hours of work and and uh, spending time visiting and talking and doing seminars and 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 just providing your knowledge. So, from me to you guys, we I appreciate it. Um, I I know that um, we'll sit down again at some point and do this, and there's a lot more to to talk about. But I, I'm. Um, appreciative of your time and and everything but to, to, if you want to tell everybody i know you're going to say uh, uh i know you're going to you're going to promote field day and all that but tell everybody when it is and kind of if you set a date for it and all that and so uh folks that are listening can be thinking about it sure so our our fall field day which is kind of our our super bowl if you will uh it's august 29th in knoxville this year and there'll be lots of communication social sure. media and email wise about registering and all the event details if you have to travel from uh, away from Knoxville, we do a hotel room block at a discounted rate. Uh, if you're listening in another state, we, we try to get uh, recertification credits uh, for all neighboring states to Tennessee or mm -hmm. as close to as we can. Um, so there'll be opportunities there if you're in Western North Carolina or North Georgia to get, you know, credits for your states by attending. And, you know, it's a really good opportunity to see the, the, the width and breadth of what we do uh, in the program. And, you know, whenever you can get 500 plus people all of the same industry together at one place, that's just a fun day. Yeah, that's huge. Um, so that's that's definitely something we'd love to see folks at. Uh, we just had uh, last week uh, our um, our POA field day, and this has been really fun for us. So we call it hashtag POA day, and we do it completely online. So we uh, we got some support from Aqua Aid to get some camera equipment and streaming yeah. equipment. And we just go out and we show, we did on Periscope this year, you can get it through my Twitter feed or AquaAid's Twitter feed. And we show for an hour everything that we have plot-wise at the university for uh, POA control and POA management. And it's just been super cool, uh, you know, to, to have technology help us further the reach of what we're doing. I mean, we, we had done POA field days before in the spring because you, know, you come to the field day in the fall, you're not gonna see any POA work because there's barely any POA up and germinated yet. Uh, we had been doing them in the spring and we, and we played, we had one in the east, we had one in the middle, we had one in west, and we'd get 50, 60 people and that was great. Yeah. And then just kind of had this idea as, as things like Facebook Live and Periscope became more, I don't know, readily available and yeah. easier to understand and easier to access, let's just try it and I mean, to be able to take, you know, content to thousands now, you know, that's, that's awesome. Yeah. And, you know, and, and we got feedback that affected this year's event. I mean, we had people that watched in Arizona saying, we well, didn't have anything about overseeded turf. Can you do overseeded turf? Well, we had overseeded plots this year specifically from that. So I would encourage anybody that's listening, you know, view that content, whether it's on Periscope uh, or through Twitter, you know, from Twitter to Periscope, uh, view it there. We'll we'll have it up on Vimeo here uh, shortly. A little bit higher resolution video than the live stream, 
and you know send us feedback we'd love to uh you know hear what you think good bad or indifferent about about the the deliverable and how we can change that so you know those are two really big uh things for us as i mentioned we're going to have our pop in for a point events uh throughout the summer that are real informal and then you know support your support your regional chapters you know whether you're east middle or west on the golf side you know go to those meetings and support those groups because they're they're key cogs in the way on the wheel and and support tta you know yeah. support the tennessee turfgrass association and you know come to the conference in murfreesboro i believe our dates are january 7th through the 9th this year uh it's early january first full week of january monday yeah. through wednesday um we we have a great program i know i'm involved in the education committee and as a group we've built another really strong program and that that conference has really grown and, and the venue's better than ever and you know i'd contend that the content gets better every year and it's just a great opportunity for not only learning but networking too so you know support the state associations because the state associations then you know it's it, it's all we're all in this together they, yep. then they support the university and the whole industry uh, of turf and tennessee benefits I, I totally agree. That's good stuff, man. Before I let you get out of here, tell me a little bit about what you like to do when you're not Dr. Brosnan. You just, do you, what do you kick back and do for fun? A uh, little bit about your family and just give somebody an insight into your, your got your, uh, you as an individual. Sure. So I'm originally from Massachusetts, so I'm a huge Massachusetts sports fan. I mean, Patriots, Bruins, Red Sox. I mean, a little bit Don't of hold it against a little, little, little bit of Celtics. It's it's just I'm a huge New England sports fan. Yeah. So, you know, I've got a you know a, a room in my house. One of the things that I've I've done forever. Do you follow barstool sports? I do follow barstool sports okay. regularly. Yeah. Uh, I figured you did. So, uh, <laughs> one of the things I've done for a long time is that when a Boston team wins a championship, I always buy the the Boston Herald and I get the cover framed. So. You know, I've I've got several of those now because it's been a great time. But it's been a great time to be a <laughs> yeah. Boston fan. And you know, when it all comes crashing down in yep. a few years, when people retire, I can go down into the basement and look at all the covers there and reminisce go. about the good times. Yep. Uh, but that's a that's a big part of it. And you know, uh, my my wife is kind of she's not a huge sports fan, but definitely it's it's an easier life for her when Boston wins. So she roots for Boston teams. And uh, my seven year old daughter Emma, she's uh, you know she's she's definitely into the Boston teams now and yep. it's it's funny she gets looks at school about well what, what what's the Boston stuff like <laughs> what, what I don't understand and she's not to a point where I think she can explain it well enough yet but uh, right. I'll, uh, I'll I'll get her there well I, good luck with all that I, is she <laughs> is um, is she turning into a UT fan or what, what she is so yeah. one of the things we do every year is we go to one UT game yeah. and, and and I'll contend, you know, and maybe the results are part of this, that we went to a UT game this year and, and UT won big and, you know, they played Rocky Top and the band plays. Yep. And I just think that college football experience, particularly for a seven-year-old kid, is tremendous. Mind-blowing. And I took her to the Patriots-Titans game in Nashville. And, you know, the experience was different. There's not the band and all sure. the stuff that comes with college football. and the Titans smoked the Patriots. So it was Probably just kind the best of a, game they played all year. Yeah. It was <laughs> a, uh, kind of a negative day for us all yeah. around. So, so I, I'm not sure, but definitely she's, uh, she's involved in, in UT football and, and fingers crossed it'll be a better UT football season this year than last year. And 
trying to get her involved in golf too now. I mean, she's uh, very, we don't live far away from the Beverly Park par three course in Knoxville. And she yeah. uh, likes to go out and hit the ball around and she'll be watching. She watched the golf with me on Sundays and just kind of, I think having her around golf and, and, you know, in turf at some level, it just kind of helps her understand, you know, what I do for a living. And sure. I think that's important. Absolutely. I, I think that's great. Well, I really appreciate you doing this. It means a lot to me. Um, you know, uh, I'm really trying to get this thing going and this content's really going to be something I hope people gravitate to and enjoy. Um, where can people follow you on Twitter or your social media platform? So we, when I push this out, we can get you uh, all the love for sure. coming on for me. So I am at UT Turf Weeds uh, on Twitter and uh, the program, the turf program at Tennessee, their their handle is at UT Turf Grass, and that's my probably number one uh, social media channel is Twitter at UT Turf Weeds. Uh, and yeah, please reach out. Uh, you can our our website has my email and uh, phone number information. That's ten, uh, TN for Tennessee TurfGrassWeeds.org. Uh, and yeah, don't don't be shy. I'm happy to anyone in the industry that that you know needs help with weed management issues and turf or just wants to talk turf in general i mean we're here and that's what that's what ut is is proud to do is be yeah. a resource for the turf grass managers in our state so please don't be shy well you guys are doing a lot of good things a lot of good things in our industry a lot of good things for us here in the state and i appreciate it i hope we get to sit down and do this again uh let's keep up the conversation about um doing a field day thing i would love to, to do that with you guys and um Thanks again for being on the on the podcast. Thank Be you. sure if you're listening to go rate it, share it. It's on all uh, podcasts. You can get it on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher. It's on Spotify. It means the world to me to rate it, share it. Um, you know, tell me what you think, good and bad. And, and until next time, guys, it's BJ Parker. This is making the turn. We'll talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.